I am grateful for this congregation's offering the leave for the Goyers to go on some vacation, some fishing time, in spite of Bill's admonition not to tell fishing stories. I'm also grateful for Bill. That's supposed to be a joke, Bill. <laughs> the, the reality is that when Peter learned after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection that Jesus had then departed them, the first words out of Peter's mouth were these, I'm going fishing. And so he did. And of course, if we know the story in the 21st chapter of John, what Peter caught was the amazing grace of Christ. And in a way, do we also fish each Sunday as we cast our nets upon the proverbial metaphorical spiritual waters of consciousness, hoping to draw in something that we can keep, when in fact, our real hope is that we are the ones who get caught. With that, let us turn to the 10th, excuse me, the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. As you know, we have been making our way through Luke's Gospel all summer. Today is a story that sounds familiar as it relates to us another experience of Jesus teaching in the synagogue. There are three teaching stories in Luke of Jesus in the synagogue, of healing events in the synagogue, and also of disturbing the institutional status quo there, beginning in the 10th verse. Now, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day. When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. This is the reading of God's Word. As we've made our way through the Gospel of Luke, we've had for us a picture of Jesus who was deeply devoted to the institutional structures of his day. He was Jewish, and therefore he worshipped in the synagogue and taught there at every opportunity. Going and engaging in the Sabbath day was his custom. That said, if you were looking for Jesus back then, the best chance of finding him would be in the church the synagogue, on the Sabbath. Now, this is not the only place that you would find the resurrected Christ. He is, of course, all over the place, in the fields where they are picking their grain, where they are working their crops, where they are working their grape or wine. 
He is in their homes. He is on the byways and highways, just, of course, as he is in our lives, everywhere. The baseball game, at the beach, at work, the golf course, even fishing. At your home, out, wherever you are. He's at Starbucks, of course, at the Waffle House, at Cashiers or Highlands or even in Costco. But it's harder to find Jesus out there so much because we do not look for Jesus out there so much. So we come to church, hopefully. We come hoping, looking, trying to discern the presence of Christ in our midst. And we hope that being in church, it will make this a little easier, that we might, in fact, catch sight of Christ, the Christ who happens to be the one who is stirring things up. In Luke's Gospel, as I said, there are three major passages with Jesus' teaching in the synagogue, and this morning's happens to be the last. Today's story is about Jesus' conflict with the status quo who run the institution of the synagogue, church. Jesus pretty much followed all the rules and laws and customs of his day. He also quite regularly broke them if there was some good reason. And the reason for Jesus was always about compassion rather than law. For instance, he was accused of sitting and eating with sinners and tax collectors. He was accused of picking grain and eating it on the Sabbath. He was accused of not being devoted to the synagogues and institutions, but instead trying to undermine them. This accusation would inevitably lead to his arrest in Jerusalem and ultimately to his death. Jesus was not a revolutionary, although as we look back, he seems that, but instead, I think, a very strong reformer. At least, I think that's how he started. In this morning's passage, we see the classic example of how Jesus hoped to reform the religious system in his institution, to turning into something that resembled the kingdom of God. He's teaching in one of the synagogues, it is unnamed, and he notices a woman in the back. Women were always in the back, for that's where women stood in those days. Think Taliban. And the woman he notices in the back is not just another woman. She's bent over all the way down, double. How he saw her, I do not know. Maybe he intuited her presence. He sees her that way, and he calls her forward. And once he made that call, everybody stopped playing on their iPhones and looked up. There was a hush in the congregation. Jesus has just called a woman forward. And when they see her, they see that she is completely bent over from some infirmity. And Jesus walks down to see her. And when she comes up, Jesus gets down on his knees in front of her because that is the only way that Jesus could see her eye to eye and says to her, Woman, you are healed. And then he puts his hand on her, and she stands up 
straight and begins to praise God. Now, as you can imagine, the religious police in the institution did not like this for many reasons, because Jesus had just broken about six different rules. You don't bring women to the front. You don't bring infirmed people close to the Holy of Holies. You don't kneel down in front of a woman if you're a man. You do not speak directly to a woman, and you do not put your hand on them. Yet there was Jesus doing it on the Sabbath. Now, we don't know her name. She just appeared. We don't know how long she had been there or how long she had worked at trying to get there. We know she was infirm for 18 years, but that's all we know. And she waited for Jesus at that synagogue week after week, 18 years, hoping he or someone would show up. All we know about her is that she was a woman, a bent-over-double woman. We assume it was scoliosis or some other arthritic condition, but I think maybe that's assuming too much. I think it was the weight of the world that had bent her in half. Maybe she was just bent over by grief had lost so many loved ones that she just couldn't pull herself up out of it. Or maybe it was guilt of some event or past life that had bent her down. Shame will do that. Shame will double you down. It will crank you down all the way down. Your shoulders sag. Your, your back sags. Your upper torso falls closer to the ground. You can't breathe. Maybe it was addiction, some other actual disease. She may have been burdened by too much responsibility, the weight of anxiety or fear. She maybe had been trying to carry all the rules of righteousness the good religious people had heaped on her, telling her if you do this and you do that, you'll finally be made good. We don't know what bent her over or bound her down, but I suspect we have an idea in our own lives what it could have been. Jesus just said, the devil did it. The picture you get of this woman bent over double who cannot look up and see you in the eye is of a woman whose only view is of the dirty, sandaled feet of those that walked near her for 18 years. When I was 45, I was asked for some reason uh, to be a seminar leader for the Northeast Georgia Presbyterian women. I worked hard to get ready for this two-day event drove up to the mountains of northeast Georgia, set up shop, ready to go, and about 60 different women filed in, half of whom were African-American, the other half uh, Caucasian and so forth, most of all of them older than I was. And it occurred to me, I have absolutely no reason 
that I can figure out that I am up here talking to these women who probably are a whole lot wiser and a whole lot more faithful than I am. So I, first night, had set up this deal. We were going to read this passage in Luke, and then we were going to reenact it. And there were, uh, we, we divided up into about ten subgroups of six or so, and we put everybody out in the yard and said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read this text, and one person play the bent-over woman, one person play Jesus, one person play the leader in the synagogue, uh, the righteous leader, and the rest of you be the crowds. Just act it out. Well, one particular group only had five in it, and so they said, Steve, come on over. You need to be in our group. Wait a minute. That's not, that's not the way it's supposed to work. I'm the teacher. You're the ones who are supposed to be doing this. But, you know, I'm just trying to go along with it, so okay, I'll come over and I'll just I'll help out. So, I, Steve, they said, you get to be the bent-over woman. Not only that, Steve, we need you to get down on your knees because you are too tall and most women are about what you are on your knees. Now I want you to bend over. Tell us what you see. Only feet. And those feet came closer and closer to me. And those women five of whom were African Americans and can tell you what it means to be beat down and bent over by the culture and society that they've lived in. Those African American women and other Caucasian women walked over to me on my knees and laid their hands on me and began to pray. And there I was, the teacher, being healed by Jesus. Jesus is this stirrer-upper who comes into our lives and does not let the managers and institutional purveyors and all the people who want to maintain status quo have their way. For Jesus' way is always to bring those in the world who have been bent over double healing and strength to stand up. We're celebrating 50 years in Washington this weekend. 50 years ago, when they came to Washington and heard the words of so many great speakers, and what was that about? But about a people who were saying, we will no longer be bent over by culture. For we will now stand up straight as we go forward. Jesus proclaimed that woman free of her ailment and laid his hands on her. And she stood up straight and praised God. And i got to ask you, what else can we do? Jesus, answering those religious police who said, this is out of bounds, said, you hypocrites. And then he told them, well, who of you don't let your donkey find water? Who of you doesn't let their ox out of the barn and get to find refreshment? And if this woman is not set free, how can you let your donkey drink? You can imagine at that point that it was curtains for Jesus because all the religious authorities 
got together and began to say, we can't let somebody like this loose in our institutions. There's several things that I'm left with as I read this story. One is that the institution of the church and its tendency to get bound up by its rules and beliefs needs to always need someone like Jesus in it who will stir it up. Yes, the job of every institution is to keep things in order. Chaos is not good. But order at the sake of truth. Our institutions too often become fossilized with managers and regulations and orthodoxy that hangs on for dear life when threatened. I had to get a tag for my new car a couple of weeks ago, actually a used car. And so I went to the tag office, having gone online, doing all the work, taking all the paperwork, and as I went, finally got up to the desk, which took about 16 hours, it seemed, uh, the woman said, okay, thanks, you got it all. Now, did you drive the car? No. Am I supposed to? Yes. I've got to verify the odometer. Had to go back the next day with the car, finally get up to the desk. Okay, let's go look at it. We walk out. Get in, she says. Tell me what the odometer says. The institution has been managed to keep the rules. Where do we do that in church? I'm struck with the presence of Jesus who does not give up on the institution even still, for that's where Jesus is every Sabbath in the midst of the church, the synagogue, I had a conversation with a friend of mine recently who is fairly spiritual and uh, struggling some with his own life. He's about 55 years old. And I said, you go to church. Are you in a community of uh, faithfulness or, or church that you participate in? And he goes, no, I really don't. I sort of do it on my own. Uh, besides, you know, I said, what does that mean? He goes, well, I just when I go to church, I just find it mostly full of hypocrites. You know, people sort of looking like they're better than they really are. They're all dressed up, and, and most of them are wealthy, and I just, don't feel, I just don't feel like it's real. I said, well, there's some churches you can go to where that's not the case. So, well, to tell you the truth, when I, when I listen to preachers, it just doesn't feel like they're relevant. They're always, like, thumping stuff on me and telling me stuff i got to carry around, whether it's guilt or the Bible, and it just, I got enough in my life to carry around. I said, well, there's some preachers who don't do that. I mean, uh, churches and preachers who try to take things off of you rather than lay it on you. That wasn't what it was at the bottom of it. You see, as we continue to talk, he shared that when he was five years old, he remembers his stepfather picking him up and using him like a baseball bat against the wall. And he was struggling with what that abuse meant to him in his life. And he really didn't trust himself being in a larger community like this where that might in fact be made present in the face of Jesus. What I wanted to get across to him was that real church is where that is exactly what is happening where we share our brokenness and our bent-overness and our hurt, even our hypocrisy, 
where we are bound up by all the stuff that's like a monkey on our backs. Where we walk into this church spiritually bent over by it. And where we come to this table and hear the words of Jesus who says, Come unto me, all you who are heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. When we stand up at baptism, we stand up at baptism for this child who is such an infant that she cannot stand for herself. And we say we will care for and raise this child up to stand straight. We give each other names in this world. William, Stephen, as you were named, as you were baptized, a child of God. And we throw bad names at people too. Nicknames that are dirty and hurtful and mean like chubby. Those names mean nothing. Those names are meant to bring us down and to lower us into the ground, but those names mean nothing. There's no greater moment in the church than when we name that child God's own. Fred Craddock, the great preacher you heard quoted a thousand times by most every preacher you've ever heard preach, tells of meeting a man one day in a restaurant in East Tennessee. The man walks up and pulls a chair up and sits down and says, You're the preacher, aren't you? And Fred embarrassingly says, Yes. He said, i got to talk to you. And so Fred said, okay. The man said, when I was a boy, I lived a very, very sad and hurtful life. You see, my mother had me out of wedlock. I was a bastard, they used to call me. It was so sad that we didn't go to church because we knew everybody was looking at us as we came in, so we stayed away. But one day, there was a revival in town, and so my mother decided to go, and we got in that little church and sat in the very back so we would not be noticed. And the preacher that they'd hired got up and started preaching, and he was this big old man with a black outfit, and he had a deep voice, and he was preaching and preaching and going up and down the aisles, and he was something. After that revival was over, we tried to sneak out, and as I got to the door, I felt this giant hand on my shoulder. I turned around and looked up into the eyes of that preacher dressed in black. He looked down into my face, and he said to me, Son, where's your daddy? He said, I looked up into those preacher's eyes and said, I ain't got no daddy. The preacher said, yes, you do. You are a son of the king. And you were bought with a great price. And don't you ever forget it. The man looked at Craddock and said, you know what? I have never forgot it. And that's all you ever need to preach. Sunday after Sunday. He got up, shook Craddock's hand introduced himself and walked off. And Craddock said, Oh, that name's familiar. He's the ex-governor of the state of Tennessee. Woman, stand up straight. Amen.